everybody. Lovely to see you here. Some obligatory trouble plugging in on that to the screen. Pretty much ready to get going. Um, you did very well to make it here. I sort of, I think, I almost got shot three times walking in the wrong direction trying to find the street. So I think we've all done very well just to get to the top of the stairs and make it. But we'll just wait and leave another second just for people are coming in. Um, we've got a handout for you, um, so you can take that away and uh, I'd love to make sure we grab the details before you go so that we can just keep in touch and send information about what Premier's up to um, so we can make sure we don't leave um, an outing. Good, well, thank you. Let's get underway. Um, let's get underway. So, yes, it's great to see you here. My name's Kevin Bennett. I'm the acting CEO of Premier. And uh, many of you will know uh, my boss, Peter Kerridge. Uh, we'd like to be here today. He's currently receiving treatment for leukaemia. And he's going to be um, sort of out of action uh, for the rest of this year, I think. But he's going, treatment's going very well. And I know many friends of Premier have been praying for him and have sent my wishes. So thank you. That's you because he really does appreciate all the incredible support he's had from the whole Premier Network through this period. Um, but this particular event, the National Parliamentary Prayer Breakfast, is something that Premier's been involved with for some time. We've supported and broadcast and partnered with this event for about the last five or so years. And it's good we believe in prayer, but I think prayer is really important. It's a core part of Premier's life. We also believe in really thoughtful and intelligent uh, public engagement. So I think the idea that Christians come together to pray for, to support, and to build relationships with those in power is really important. But we're also here today because we believe in two other things, which is the future of the church. Uh, we believe that Jesus said he would build his church and the gates of hell uh, will not prevail. And we'll, we also believe that digital media especially has a huge role to play in connecting people to their faith, to other believers, to God's word, and to the church at large. And that's what we want to talk a little bit about today. Um, now we're going to share some statistics today which aren't all that encouraging, right? So there are things we're going to, we have to face up to when we look at the life of the church right now. So we're going to share a bit about that. We're also going to look at what we think maybe some of the, the next steps or the answers and solutions are to some of those challenges. Um, for those of you who don't know Premier, Premier is uh, Europe's leading Christian media organisation. It was founded in 1995, but we began to broadcast in 1995. And for that to happen, there needed to be a change in the law in this place. Up until 1990, you had the UK, Saudi Arabia, North Korea, and a host of other countries that didn't allow Christians to own and broadcast media operations. And so there was a big campaign, actually, to get that law changed so that Premier could even exist in the first place. And so we launched in 1995 with five little medium wave transmitters and a help. And over the last 28 years, Premier has grown significantly. We now have two national radio stations, Another radio station in London and the South East and the Gospel. We publish magazines, we have a whole suite of websites, we have podcasts. And uh, Premier has really flourished in these last 28 years. And in fact, today, Premier has 1.8 million weekly listeners across its three radio stations. We have 1 million monthly podcasts downloads across about 14 different podcasts, 15 million annual page views to our websites, and 110,000 people. They're every day receiving content from us by email. And those people that listen to us listen for an average of about six hours a week. So we are feeding into the life of the church in quite a deep and significant way every week through the content that we publish. Now, today we're here to talk about
about digital disruption, that's kind of like a large part of what we want to, we want to share. You know, what is digital disruption? Now, the digital revolution, I guess, is the driver of digital disruption, and revolutions are always disruptive. It's kind of part of their DNA. Sometimes we think about it as a really recent thing, but actually the kind of digital revolution started a long while ago. This is Colossus, uh, which helped crack the Enigma code back in World War II, and on the other side of the pond you had ENIAC. And uh, out of that kind of innovation that happened during World War II, a whole chain of events unfolded. And I would say, you can never get up to Bletchley Park to see Colossus. He's definitely worth a trip. Um, but taking it a little bit further, here's a really cool dude from the 1980s. And he's modeling the best of 1980s technology. And you can see he has a music system on his shoulder, a video camera. He's got a Walkman. He's got a word processor. He's got a uh, little portable TV sitting over there as well. And uh, every single one of those devices has been replaced by a smartphone. And so this journey that we've been on, I mean, the launch of the iPhone was a huge part of it, wasn't it, in 2007, radically accelerated everything that we'd experienced. Yes, it's been a long journey, but doesn't the pace seem to have quickened in maybe this last 10 or 15 years. And so much now of our life is mediated through that device. The average adult picks up their phone 144 times a day to check it. 44% of adults check their phone as the very first thing they do every morning. And for 25% of people, that is within one minute of waking up. Isn't that something quite profound? Now, at the same time, we can share a little bit later about church attendance habits, because they've skipped now not 144 times a day, not even once a week, but maybe once a month. So we've got some real questions to ask ourselves about where the church is alive and vibrant. And whilst the set is dismantled behind me, I'll carry on. Um, but of course, you know, the iPhone, as I said, it quickened the pace, it accelerated things. But of course, this year we've seen a whole bigger leap forward as well, haven't we? So how many people have sort of engaged with code with ChatGPT? Is this something which is coming to your world at all? Some of you might be using it in the workplace, but this idea of generative AI, the fact that robotics and automation seem to be about to make such a huge change upon the future, we need to be prepared for the next steps as well. And now the church, I think, has often been in the fall, you know, Bugs Bunny, as it relates to digital. And, and kind of digital was seen as something, you know, at best peripheral to church life for much of the last, say, 20 years, but quite often seen as a threat. It was a threat to true relationship, a threat to, you know, the church meeting on a Sunday morning. It was something which may not actually be all that helpful for us. But, of course, something happened, didn't it, a couple of years ago, and we couldn't meet together in person. And instead of being bugged funny, we were all of a sudden <laughs> And we had to lay digital track in the seconds before we passed across, across it. And I think whilst we did that, our congregants were all kind of clinging on for dear life as they had to uh, figure out how to make use of uh, all these tools that we just thrust before them. Um, and it was a great opportunity in some respects to learn new things. And we've heard a lot of representations from people who were previously housebound, chronically ill, who said that a whole world opened up to them through the pandemic. Conferences, meetings, church services, things they were always told were too hard to make accessible online. All of a sudden, they were accessible. But that's why it was a bit of a disappointment, actually, when we exited the pandemic, and a lot of church leaders, whom I understand were absolutely fatigued by the whole experience, decided that maybe Zoom wasn't the future, and actually we needed everybody to get back in the building. Um, and I think you know, that was something which was challenging for a lot of people, as some of the digital doors that had opened for a number of people actually shut, 
at the end of the pandemic. And uh, this was something actually that we got engaged with at the time. We launched at this meeting two years ago, something called the Hybrid Church Charter. And it was all about getting churches to sign up to a set of 10 key principles to ensure accessibility through digital and hybrid church. And, and we're not in favour of a particular mode of church. What we're in favour of is everybody having access to it. And digital is a way in which people who would not normally be able to access church can access. And so we got hundreds and hundreds of churches to sign up to this charter, basically saying, as the physical doors open, the digital doors must be shut. But back to our topic uh, of digital disruption. And um, what does digital actually disrupt? Maybe we should actually look at that for a moment, and especially in a way that's relevant to church and Christian faith. Well, a few things I want to share. First thing that digital disrupts is the link between location and presence. Now, that picture looks like someone's attending a Zoom meeting. We're all pretty comfortable with that. I get that that happens. We get a little bit more nervy when we see medical things, you know, because actually we quite like to see our doctor face to face. Well, often, but sometimes we quite like to get seen quickly, but that makes us a little bit more maybe unsure. And then we get to things like Mark Zuckerberg. So Mark Zuckerberg is, as you know, a massive enthusiast of something metaverse. The idea that we will live out large parts of our lives with goggles strapped to our eyeballs, interacting in a, in a virtual world. And you can see here, there's someone who exists in that picture in their sort of, I guess, their human form, if that's a way of putting it. There's someone there who's on a kind of screen, but the screen's virtual. And then you've got someone interacting there as a completely kind of uh, virtual avatar. Um, digital does disrupt the link between location and presence. And you will notice maybe just in the last few weeks, Apple launched something called the Apple Vision Pro, a $3,500 headset, which is uh, similar to the, the kind of uh, the rest of these headsets, except it's called augmented reality. So now this lady sits in her front room and she sees her front room, she's not disconnected from it, but all of her apps and everything else floats in the ether around her. Is this the future? Because this is the direction of travel that all of the big tech companies are investing tens and hundreds of billions of dollars developing. What does that mean for us? Second thing, though, that digital disrupts is digital disrupts gatekeepers. Now, it used to be you had to go through certain channels to get to where you wanted to go. Now, maybe you was in the music industry and you needed a kind of a whole kind of publisher, you needed agents, you needed a whole machinery to both get spotted, get published, get distributed. And of course, now what we can see is that someone can have a blow-up song on TikTok, and it's on Capital FM the next week. So the gatekeepers that used to stop us and to stop people from going from A to B are no longer there. People don't expect anyone in the middle. They expect to be able to reach an audience immediately without anybody uh, to kind of put that audience through. That's another interesting thing as we consider the church, we consider the role that we have and uh, the kind of gatekeeper's role we have to faith in our church buildings. Third thing, though, is that digital also disrupts authority. So where do we get our sense of truth from, and where do we get influenced by? Um, and so where would you go to if you want information about a particular topic? And by and large, people now turn to influencers. Um, so if I wanted to know about the next iPhone and all of its kind of wonderful features and whether it's better than the latest Android phone, I wouldn't necessarily go to Witch Magazine. You know, I'd go to a YouTuber who's got 10 million followers, who's the kind of like UK world authority, on mobile phones. And so now we're no longer, well, it's the generation, the digital generations coming through, are no longer looking to the same people and the same institutions for authority as they previously had. And we've had so many scandals of authority, and we've been in this place today, and you know, we can all remember the expenses scandal, we can all remember, you know, within the church, the whole kind of unpacking of the clerical abuse scandal. 
And so this sense that there are institutions to which we defer to and which we seek to get authority from is a much weakened position when actually we look far more online to people who look and sound like us to tell us what to think. And so that disruption and all of those things and more, we kind of can see the impacts of that. We've seen that in businesses. And of course, you know, we all loved Woolworths, didn't we? Not quite enough to shut them up, though, didn't we? That's the, that's the problem, because the things that they sold, we could get quicker and cheaper online. The things which I used to go for as a kid on one CDs, you know, say for them to buy a single, it doesn't happen anymore. So, so much disruption happened. And all of these institutions, I think the last blockbuster shut in the middle of America, just a couple of months ago, it was in the middle of summer that had no internet because it's incredibly remote. There used to be something like 30,000 blockbusters around uh, the world. But the actual organisation I want to focus on a little bit, uh, to make an illustration really for us in the church, is Kodak. So Kodak was once a behemoth of an organisation. It was founded in 1888, and in 1988, 100 years later, it was at its peak. It had 145,000 employees, it had turnover. $14 billion, it had 90% share of photography, 90% market share processing photographs. And actually, as we think about it now, taking a photograph down the chemist and waiting a week for them to come back seems like another world, doesn't it? But Kodak was an incredibly innovative organisation because it had such resources. And they, uh, they spent a lot on research and development. And uh, in 1974, they invented this. This is the world's first digital camera. So this is the direct ancestor of our phones, every digital camera phone that has smartphones traces its roots back to this device. And you can see it's a bit weird. It stored the pictures it took on a tape cassette because that was the technology of the time. But it was a momentous breakthrough um, in, in technology. And you had this little thing here where you could plug it in and see it on the screen. Wonderful. The next generation has arrived. But what did Kodak do with that? Um, well, the answer is absolutely nothing because the inventor, Steve, uh, he took it to the uh, took it to the bosses, and the bosses said, "Oh no, this is a bit of a problem. Our business is film. So your product does away with film. We can't do that." And they also said, "Film's been around for a hundred years. No one's complaining about films. No one's been clamouring for a new and alternative to films. There's no need for this product. Nobody wants to look at photos on the screen. I mean, that is not a comment that age well, is it?" Um, so what did they do? They sat in 1974. But do you know what? They're still innovative. They actually kept investing. And so as time went on, they built better and better, better cameras. The first high-quality megapixel camera left it on the bench, didn't deliver it, didn't develop it, kept on pushing film. And then what happened? Sony launched a digital camera. And Sony and Olympus and all the others that actually got it started launching digital cameras. And uh, Kodak decided that they would get in on the act, and they launched a digital camera that somehow managed to save its photos on film. I still can't quite get my head around this, but this was their idea to kind of safeguard their business model, that they needed something that somehow involved the film. So, 1988, told them they were the peak of their powers, 145,000 staff. And um, uh, it was about 2005 that the digital camera market just exploded and people started buying them. In 2012, Kodak went broke in seven years from the start of the digital camera revolution, 2005, they were broke. Now, that was 2012. Also in 2012, Facebook paid a billion dollars for a little-known entity called Instagram. Instagram didn't have 145,000 employees, it had 13 employees, believe it or not. And uh, just seven years later, just seven years later, Instagram's revenues were greater than Kodak at its peak. Just think about that, just think about that, in 2019. 
And today, of course, Kodak sadly is history. Bankrupt, it kind of licenses its name for a few things. The reason I share that illustration with is very, uh, it's, I think, very pertinent to 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 share because the interesting thing about Kodak is not that they were against progress. It's not that they weren't innovative. It's not that they didn't invest in the next generation of products. It's not that they didn't produce reports and have lots of committee meetings. There's report after report that they wrote internally about digital cameras for about 20 years. The point is, they were too scared to change the model. They were too scared to embrace anything that threatened the traditional way in which their organization had run. And they thought that that model would just carry on, right? Because they were big, they'd been around for a long time. But it took seven years, seven years to undo a 100-year-old company and send it to the wall. Um, and I say that because actually, we need to be brave. We need to be brave as we look at what needs to be done. And if you know what needs to be done, you need to do it. I'm not saying today precisely what that means, and I think that's for the church to figure out. I'll share some thoughts more specifically in a moment. But the key point is we need to do what needs to be done to reach our next generation. But when all of this, it can feel like everything has changed, right? Everything's changed. It's changed so quickly. Um, I suppose the question is, has it? You know, because actually humans are still the same. On the left there on that picture, you just see people reading the newspaper, what they're trying to get informed and entertained on the commute. That's no different to today when there are people on the right. Perhaps you think about all the days when people used to listen to the radio. Thankfully, they still do. But they actually listen to it by and large on this device. Um, and so uh, if you, you, you think about smart speakers, right, and you think about, okay, I'll take the web, I'll do my shopping or whatever, I'll just do my lists on it. Do you know the number one use for smart speakers by the amount of hours listened? Radio. People say Alexa, playing whatever radio station. So if the number of hours in use of that device on the right is actually a really fancy radio that does lots of other things and then they're on 60% of homes. So has everything changed or actually are we still the same people? And yes, Woolworths, there's still, there's still a gap on my high street where Woolworths once was. But on another part of my high street is Amazon Fresh. I don't know if you've ever been to an Amazon Go or an Amazon Fresh store, right? But you walk through the front and you tap your phone and you pick up a bag and you put everything in the bag and you walk out. And that's it. And uh, all of the tracking sensors they've got in the shop work out what you put in the bag. And if you pick up this beans and that beans, you put these back and then you change your mind. It tracks all that as well. You just walk out and uh, it builds you. And Tesco are now launching one. They've launched one in Birmingham. And so, yes, retail has changed. But actually, people still need stuff. It's just getting delivered in new uh, and interesting ways. And actually, everything and nothing has changed as it relates to faith. This is a survey done by Pew in America in 2018. And it asked people, why do you go to religious services? Why do you go to religious services? And uh, the answer here was that uh, 6 in 10 say it's primarily to become closer to God. Um, and that's quite important, actually, because I know it might seem almost obvious. But we often think about ritual, we think about community, and we think about all the things that churches offer. Right? But the one reason that they actually come to our churches is to get closer to God. And so if that's what they wanted, in the same way that people wanted their music, and they used to buy on CDs, and now they, when they went onto iTunes and now it's streaming, how do we enable that journey? Because that's the heart need that their interaction with our churches has been uh, driven by. And um, Steve Jobs obviously held up as a wonderful example of a man who understood what people wanted and how to actually give it to them in a way that um, was useful. And they had this phrase, it just works. 
Now, I don't know if any of you had smartphones before the iPhone, but I did. I had a Windows mobile phone in 2006. My goodness. Um, it barely worked, right? If I give you an image, have you ever like an image of someone who's got the bonnet on their car every weekend tinkering <laughs> to try and make it work? That's what a Windows mobile phone was like before the iPhone, right? You had to tweak with the registry settings and then it would crash and, you know, like I spent, it was meant to be a time saving device. I spent more time looking after that phone than it ever saved me. And then along comes the iPhone and Steve Jobs sounds up, it just works. And uh, first of all, I'm skeptical. That doesn't look a proper technology, does it? There's no widgets on it, you know, it looks like boring. And then I start using it. Oh, yeah, it does just work, doesn't it? And, uh, and of course, that's a massive drive because actually people assume that functionality is what is actually uh, driving a lot of technological change. It's not actually that, it's ease. The number one thing that we are actually wired to want is ease. If I've got room A and room B, and one is hard and one is easy, tend to take the one that's easy. Now the fact that that road might be easier because there's some increased functionality, that's fine. But what you see is a lot of tech products fail because what we assume is people want new functions. They want to be wowed. They actually just want what they want to be delivered in an easy way. Going back to that point, they want to become closer to God. How do we give, deliver that in a way that just works using the Apple mind? And um, I'm not here to be negative about church, I want to be realistic, but I think we have to accept that one thing that's not currently working is the UK population turning up to our services on Sunday mornings. It's a very small percentage, and the statistics don't lie. There has been six consecutive decades of decline in church attendance in this country. Six consecutive decades. We have to face up to that. And uh, we asked, uh, we did a survey of a thousand Christians and asked them some questions. One of them we asked them was about the changing behaviour pre and post pandemic. And uh, one of the things I say about the pandemic is that it was an accelerant. So a lot of things changed, but that's not maybe the right way of looking at it. You know, working from home was a trend, remote shopping was a trend, um, you know, digital church was a trend. The pandemic forced us to accelerate probably five, six, seven years worth of change into about one year. Unfortunately, that has also impacted on church declines, impacted on church finances, as some of you here will know. And every survey pretty much agrees that churches are not as full as they were. And uh, sort of just, you know, talking um, sort of uh, roundly, research we did before the pandemic suggested sort of attendance of maybe one in every three weeks. So let's think about that. This, this is committed church goers. Now, there's always going to be people in the churches where they're every week, Sunday morning and Sunday evening. But let's talk about the average. The average was about one in three weeks. Now, if they're attending for an hour, hour and a half, that's not an awful lot of spiritual input, because also other research suggests that spiritual disciplines in between meetings are not that strong. So that dips now maybe to one in, once a month, and that's a large driver. So it's not that people have given up on church, but they're attending less frequently, which has pushed attendances even lower. And um, that's something which, as I say, we need to, everyone seems to think that this is actually likely to continue. Now, this is where it gets a little bit not pleasant, because if you take a graph with six decades of decline and continue to draw straight lines, you get some extinction dates, right? That's what you get. Now, it, on this graph, I, and you can go to this website, churchmodel.uk, um, and have a look at the methodology behind it. The point is, if things go the way that they've gone, these churches don't exist. Now, that's a do-nothing scenario, isn't it? It assumes we don't adapt, it assumes that we don't change, it assumes that everything continues to go in the way it always has done, which is not always 
hopefully going to be the case. But it is certainly something that should wake us up. Um, and, and just to add more, you know, not to be so negative about it, he would be predicting the end of the church forever. Voltaire, French philosopher, said in 1776, 100 years from today, there won't be a Bible on earth except for that which is in a museum. And um, of course, there are now more Bibles in circulation of the Bible, and the Word of God is more accessible to people than ever before. So I don't share the statistics I shared to say we're doomed. I just share them because they're real and we need to react to them. But actually, as I said at the start, Jesus said he will build his church. How does he want to build his church today? But we also asked some more questions to try and get to the heart of some of the issues as to why maybe churches aren't as uh, full as we might like. And one of the things that came back very strongly was confidence. Okay? Christians currently massively lack confidence to talk about faith. I would uh, go so far as to say that Christians are in danger of retreating into the closet. Okay? In, in all seriousness, uh, there's a stat there I put up on the bottom right which shows the decline in people who say they know a practicing Christian. So in 2015, 68% of the UK population said they knew a practicing Christian. And uh, in 2022, it went down to 53%. Now that's really important because the other research um, around it shows that if someone doesn't know a practicing Christian, they generally think Christians are bigoted, irrelevant, you know, they have a positive opinion necessarily because their, their opinion is conditioned by culture. If they tick the box and say, yes, I know a practicing Christian, well, they'll say, oh, actually, you know, Christians are right, aren't they? My mate Bob's a Christian, he's a good chap, you know. And uh, so this is a really big issue because if Christians lack confidence, whether that's online or offline, we retreat, we don't talk about God, we don't talk about faith, we don't want to go there, we don't want to get asked questions about sexuality, we don't get questions about all sorts of uh, hot-button topics, we're retreating out of the public sphere and everyone's looking around making assumptions about what we're like. Except if they get to know us, they think we're all right. That's a real challenge. It's something which we have to address through our congregations and uh, through how we kind of condition the culture of church. Um, I think it's well just worth pointing out that a lot of Christians don't even see sharing faith as particularly important. And um, evangelism is a word which is, and it's got a little bit of baggage, isn't it? People don't necessarily like the word evangelism. But however we phrase it, we need to get to a point where Christians are being open, they're being out with their faith. Some thoughts though on why Christians might not feel confident. So this is asking a question relevant to today about whether Christians feel the government legislation is increasingly threatening freedom of thought, conscience, speech, religion. 89% of the Christian uh, community agree. And whichever survey you look at over the last 10, 20 years, it's basically the same kind of numbers. So 12,000 sample survey 2017, 93% felt Christianity was being marginalised, and um, on and on onwards. And uh, similarly, the Government Do God report, uh, just published recently, saw similar submissions um, and actually produced 22 recommendations for government uh, based on 21,000 kind of people responding. Um, so there is a consensus in the Christian community that there's a marginalisation happening. Now we can argue that's not true, it's cultural, people don't know. There's all sorts of perspectives on that. We can debate whether that's true or not, or to the extent that it's true. What we can't debate is that that's what people think, and people act in accordance with what they think and believe. Secondly, they also feel that the media is against them. So, even worse than government, 94% don't think that the media understands Christianity, represents it, or serves Christians well. You know, we're often sort of seen as the only group you can kind of parody in many ways, um, in a, a comedy program or something like that. 
And um, you see it also in religious reporting where there's a, a sort of uh, a lack of understanding about faith, churches, denominations, the Christian tradition, and therefore the quality of reporting is really low. But then also you don't get the, the good news stories because that doesn't really particularly fit the kind of uh, zeitgeist of, of what's being shared. And then, of course, you don't hear the, the kind of negative stories necessarily about persecution and so forth. I would say, well, obviously I would say, this, that that shows what Christian media is so important because what Christian media does is it doesn't serve Christians. It does look to give them uh, content that will help grow their faith. It does look to share good news stories. It does look to share the really important bad news stories. And also, crucially, it understands faith. It understands the difference between the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church and all the other types of uh, church that we represent. And what this then goes on to say, again, looking at why maybe Christians lack confidence, is that there's a general sense in which uh, the person in the pew hasn't got confidence in their denomination. Um, and there's other stats which I could share about the thoughts on leadership within denominations, which are also pretty negative. And uh, if you're into football, uh, I would say he was the manager of sports, you've lost the dressing room. That's the, that's the, that's the reality. So there's a sense that uh, if you sort of put that all together, the person in the pew isn't turning up in the pew all that much, right? But they're turning up to uh, necessarily to a place where they're not entirely sure the denomination's quite got it now in terms of where they're going, and they're pretty sure the government and the media's got it out there, right? That's necessarily, that is kind of the mindset of a lot of Christians. And we need to look at that and unpack that. And again, it's not about whether it's right or wrong, it's just about that's how people feel. But also we asked some questions in this survey um, about leadership, and we asked whether um, uh, the general Christian population thought that maybe we should look more to leadership from the denominations and church structures that have come to the UK in the last hundred years. And um, interestingly, there was a net degree uh, for that, um, because you know, I think there's a sense that most people, again, in the pew can see that the vibrancy in the church is quite often coming from uh, diaspora communities. Um, a confidence and a vibrancy, which perhaps they don't uh, necessarily see in other places. And, uh, and this is coming back to the church model, but, but what you can see is that the post-1900 denominations are showing growth, and the historic denominations are showing decline. I'm not going to opine as to why that is, but these are, um, these are facts. So, I touched on this already, acceleration, so things just get quicker. Things just get quicker. And going back to the analogy of music, so you will remember vinyl, many of you will remember vinyl, and did you know that was the primary way of listening to music for 90 years? Okay, so that was 90 years. So then CDs came CDs was digital format. That was the primary way of listening to music for 20 years. That was pretty good. But then iTunes came along. We thought the digital revolution has arrived on music, right? The digital revolution, that's the, this is the way of the future. We'll all download our music from iTunes. That lasted 10 years. And because now it's all about streaming, it's all about Spotify and Apple Music and all the rest of it. We don't buy 79p singles anymore from iTunes, and iTunes doesn't even offer that service anymore. But we could eat 90 years, 20 years, 10 years. The pace of change continues to quicken. And coming back to the topic of AI, just this year, the flurry of stories. So you'll see on the left-hand side here something from the Times where an artist rejected a photography prize that they were awarded in a prestigious competition because they just typed it into uh, an image text image generator and got AI to make the image. Um, you can see across the freelance writer chat boards of Reddit so much angst. People who are losing jobs, quite frankly, because generative AI, ChatGPT, and the like 
already starting to get deployed. Chinese gaming illustrators, video game illustrators, they're saying that two people can now do the work of ten. Um, and coders as well. The, the amount, of, the capability of AI to code is quite shocking. It seems to have come from nowhere. And I share this with you. This is Jesus taking a selfie. Of course, it's not Jesus taking a selfie. Someone just typed the words, Jesus taking a selfie, into Midjourney, which is the platform, and it just produced this. But a year ago, this wouldn't have been possible, but the examples were a year ago, before. Um, and what we've just seen over the last two or three months is text to video. So that takes this a step further. So not only do you type in, I don't know, uh, a video of whatever you want, it just then produces a video. So I saw an example where someone typed in Captain America and Iron Man on a cookery show, basically playing MasterChef. And they, they, they basically got this video generated out of thin air of Captain uh, America and Iron Man cooking together. It looks absolutely obvious. But, and it's a bit rough around the edges, and you can see why it's AI generated. But the point is, it's the worst it'll ever be today. So, where would it be in a year's time? This is huge issues. You might have seen in Germany uh, about a few weeks ago uh, a whole church service, just as a kind of experiment, was done entirely led by AI. And it did the prayers, it did the sermons, um, and a couple of hundred people showed up. And of course, it was a gimmick, it was a stunt, it was part of a conference. Um, how uncomfortable does that make us? How uncomfortable does that make you? Um, it's really quite scary. The thing I would say about the, um, uh, the AI is that the quality of it, if you have plans, is, is scarily good when you ask it theological questions. It is actually um, better than you think, but it is a black box. You don't understand how it's thinking, so there's all sorts of issues in the future about who controls the box and who controls what comes out of the box. Um, so we could talk about that further. So, whole other session really. But this is the future, and it's not even really the future, this is now, this is the last few weeks. But going back to our survey, when we asked people, do they think the church is ready for this? No. So I, you know, if I was to be pejorative, I would say that churches are have struggled with the kind of it's called the iPhone zoom in. But by and large they've got a bit of it together, right? But the iPhone is now a what 16 year old product? Um, and Facebook is 19 years old. So, so this is actually not the present, talking about iPhones and Facebook. It's really you know, the past. The present is this new development with AI and robotics automation, and the future, well, that's anybody to guess. But what we need to be is prepare for that, because 30% of the jobs are at risk of automation. That's a huge number. Um, I think there are 700,000 taxi drivers in this country, right? 700,000. It'd be a brave man to suggest that any in 20 or 30 years' time. So what jobs are those people going to do? If ChatGPC or its successors can write a letter better than you, or can write a report better than you, or can analyse data better than you, or can pull the accounts together quicker than you, where does your work come as a human being? Because in our utilitarian society, it's often about what we can produce. It's your status, your standing. You know, what can I do? What's the Christian message? says that everyone has work because we're made in the image of God. And I think in this new revolution that's coming through, that's going to be a very attractive message to people who are questioning, am I even worth anything if I can be replaced by a machine? And uh, a quote at the bottom left there, with a guy, uh, Michael Cameron, from the Center for Emerging Policy in Washington, coined the phrase, um, as I was talking with him, he said, the church has the opportunity to be the most pro-human organization on the planet. We're used to talking about the church being pro-life. This is a different context. Pro-human in the midst of an AI automation, robotics, 
revolution. What a powerful voice we could have born out of our deep Christian principles in this next phase. Actually, we should have a little bit of confidence in our ability to engage with this. Because you all know the story, the church jumped on the printing press, the Gutenberg Bible. We used it to get pamphlets and tracts and psalms and everything out of people. But it goes back even further than that. Did you know that the church helped popularise the book? So, you know, the book, with leaves and spine and all the rest of it, it wasn't the predominant means of uh, communication uh, around about the uh, first century. But the church decided it was a wonderful way to put together the Gospels. And it used the information superhighway that was the Roman road system to rush this new information out to the far corners of the empire. Innovation, boldness, is actually in the DNA of the church, is in the DNA of the Christian uh, community. So actually, as we look at all this and we wonder, are we ready for the future, have we got it, whatever, it's inside of us. God is a communicator. You know, God is a communicator. It talks about Jesus as the word of God. And so actually, as we communicate through all of these tools available to us today, we are just acting in the image of God. It's something we can do with confidence. So, is there any cause for optimism? That's a good question, isn't it? Well, actually, I think there is. I think there's actually an open door to Christianity in this country. Some of you may be familiar with the Talking Jesus research, uh, which has been done a couple of times, last year and then about seven or eight years ago. And it asked the population of the UK whether they believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Right? It's quite a big deal for us. It's pretty similar. Can I get to the heart of the matter if someone believes in Christianity? Ask them, did Jesus rise from the dead? 16% of the UK population said Jesus rose from the dead, word for word, as it's recorded in Scripture. 29% said, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. Not too sure about Scripture whether it's always 100% reliable, but yeah, he rose from the dead. 14% said, not sure, might have risen from the dead, might have not risen from the dead, who knows. And then, of course, only 4 out of 10, only 4 out of 10 people in this country are absolutely certain that Jesus did not rise from the dead. It's quite staggering, isn't it? Where are those people? Where are those people? Because they're not, they're not the people that are necessarily showing up on Sunday mornings. Asking a similar question, different way, who was Jesus? 20% of the UK population said Jesus was God in human form, lived among people in the first century. 20%. 33% prophet, spiritual leader, but not God. So again, interesting statistics there. 20% absolutely on the money, Jesus is God. 33% thinks he's more than a normal human being. There's something about Jesus, they're not quite sure what it is. Not convinced he's God, but there's something there. Um, only 25% of the UK population went for, no, it's just a man. It's just a man. 75% of the UK population, I would say, is able to be worked with on that basis. But that's the UK population, right? We're an aging population. What about young people? And I apologise, you won't be able to see very much from the distance, but I will do my best to explain why I put this slide up. Um, what about young people? Because that's the problem, right? Young people in our churches. Arna did an American research group, did a survey of 24,000 teens from across se uh, 26 countries and asked them 71 questions. A mix of Christians, non Christians, people of other faiths. So 24,000 teens. And uh, what did they say about Jesus? What did they say about faith? Uh, well, they agreed he was crucified, it was a good start. 33% of all teens surveyed worldwide said Jesus was raised from the dead. Interestingly, only 50% of people said they were Christians also tick that box. It's an interesting thing about cultural Christianity, of course, but 
there you've got 15% of other faith teams, said Jesus Christ. Yeah, what's going on there? 13% of no faith. And there again, you know, you've got, uh, of all teams, 21%, one in five teams, saying that Jesus is active in the world today. So the idea that young people don't believe in God, don't believe in Jesus, they're not interested in what we've got to offer, it's not true. It's not true. There's an openness to faith. There's an openness to spirituality. There's a longing for things of faith. And the idea that Jesus was someone that might be worth listening to is very much agreed with. Young, old, UK, most of the world. So therefore, we come to a bit of a crossroads. Then I suppose, you know, the question is, what do we do? Um, you know, what we do and how we react might depend on what we think of church. So what, when we chuck your eyes in church, what do you see? And of course, this is near to church. One I go to a church looks a bit like this. Lovely, perfectly wonderful church. Also, that looks like church for a lot of people as well. So if you go to Hillsong, it's kind of more like a rock concert, isn't it? It's not maybe what everyone's used to, but for other people, that's definitely church. But then for some other people, church looks like this. It's a small group. It's their home church. It's people meeting in homes and just doing church in that way. And then if we just scrub the Western world and just forget about what we think church looks like, this is what church looks like in Sudan when they're celebrating Easter. It doesn't look all that much like the church in North Town, but it's absolutely church. It's absolutely an expression of Christianity. And then, of course, if you're in a country where Christianity is persecuted, maybe church looks like this. Maybe you're on the ground, literally, finding a way to, uh, to stay you know, safe whilst you try to worship. And then, as we've said, during the pandemic, for some people, this became church. And connecting to people via digital means from around the world became part of their Christian fellowship. What is church? What is the future of church? To say, it depends on what we assume church to be. And, and come back to, to Kodak and say, okay, as we look at all of this, as we discern where the Spirit of God is leading us, as we discern how we move forward in accordance with his word, we've got to act boldly with what we know to be true. We can't sit on our hands and say, it's too damaging, it's too difficult, it's not how it's been done. We have to look at how we make changes unless we want to follow the same route. And I want to make sort of five suggestions for more posture towards digital, I guess, in the church uh, that we would need to take. And um, there's five things I think the church got to offer. I've already alluded to one of them already. The first one, and this is what we're in favour of, is to be firstly pro-truth. We live in an age where uh, fake news and misinformation is absolutely everywhere, where people are lost in a sense of a tangible concept of what truth is. It's impossible sometimes to have conversations, isn't it? Because someone else's view of the truth is so different to what you think is true, you can't even discuss the issue because there's no common ground. Now, the church has the opportunity to, to be incredibly pro-truth. We believe that you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. You free. So in the midst of everything that's going on in this world, the Christian community standing for truth would be something that shines. Second thing, authenticity. You know, when I was a kid, the vision of the future, always looked very clinical, it was always glossy white, this, that, and the other, Star Trek, and all the rest of it. But then you go into a coffee shop today on high-end place, it looks like this. What's going on there? Why is, why is the aesthetic people want today so raw? And I think it's a counterpoint to our Instagram age where everything is so finished, everything is so glossy, everything is so superficial, but actually what people want is the authentic reality. Even if that's a bit messy, they want to be in touch with what's real, not with what's superficial. And we in the church have something which is so much more than the superficiality of the same, so much more 
than just you are how many likes you received or you are what your job is. We have the ability to, in an authentic way to connect with what people actually really want in our superficial age, so to be pro-authenticity. The third thing is to be pro-community. The statistics show that loneliness is increasing, and we're all kind of aware historically the idea that old people can be lonely and that they become greedy widows. But young people are increasingly reporting symptoms of loneliness. And what they're also saying is that the more that they use social media, the correlation is the more lonely they feel. And so we're raising a generation of people who are lonely. And yet the church is built on the concept of koinonia. It's built on this idea of a radical community of people who live life together, who know each other and are known, who live as family, as brothers and sisters, warts and all, forgiving one another in the way that um, Amy was talking about earlier. If we can offer that community, if we can be so radically pro-community that all of these lonely people find a home in the church, wouldn't that be something? And I do think we need to be pro-digital. We need to take the tools around us and actually use them for what they're worth. That means wisdom. It doesn't mean blindness. It means using things that are the correct tools for the correct job. Um, and it doesn't mean junking history. It doesn't mean junking meeting on Sunday morning or anything like that. But what it does mean is that we've got all these tools in our hands now. Someone is picking up their phone 144 times a day. Let's get on that phone. Let's redeem some of those 144 pickups. Let's not wait for them to show up in order to try and nurture their faith. We have to be incredibly positive and forward-thinking and bold and experimental in what we do, unless we want to kind of just sit and let the world move around us. And as I've already said, we need to be pro-human. We need to be the body on this planet that is standing up for humanity as a valuable thing in the face of everything that's about to tell you that humanity ain't that special. Humanity is nothing compared to the box of tricks that can do the things that you can do. In that context, we need to be the most pro-humanities. And Premier has been um, uh, you know, trying to encourage the adoption of digital within church for a long time. I started the Digital Awards and Conference in 2006. And we spent many, many years gathering hundreds of people and doing sessions on that. And Premier was one of the first uh, radio stations full stop in the UK to stream content online. We launched Premier.tv, which is online video, uh, two years before Cloudflare, because we believed in just getting out there and trying stuff. And some of that stuff doesn't work, and some of it does. But if you don't try, you don't get anywhere. And so Premier is a, now a multimedia uh, platform, as I said to you earlier, a million podcast downloads every month. Million page views on our websites every year. It's committed to working with the church and the Christian community to help get the message out, to get your message out, to be a platform for the church, for Christian organisations in order to reach uh, a new generation. And for us, there are six areas which we're focusing on uh, in the next um, five to ten years, and they're pretty obvious really. But there's six areas of focus for us as an organisation right now. Firstly, to raise the next generation of Christians. Depending on what stats you read, either 50% or 80% of kids from Christian homes do not grow up in the faith, do not you know, continue in the faith once they uh, move into That is a travesty. Do you know four out of ten, unfortunately, um, I only have stats the Anglicans, four out of ten Anglican churches have no young people under 16, and seven out of ten only have five or fewer. That's a massive, massive issue. So, Premier is investing in projects of Premier Next Gen, which is all about resourcing parents and churches to basically reach and disciple and evangelize young people. But this growing of individual faith, it's only when we're connected to God's words, spiritual disciplines, 
the church on a daily basis how I think we actually grow. Dipping into faith doesn't work, and so we want to make sure that not just through our broadcasts, but through new technologies and new apps that we're releasing, Premier Plus is just releasing the last few weeks, a new online listening platform, there'll be a spiritual uh, companion app launching towards the end of the year. Um, we need to connect people to individual faith. And then the third thing is we also need to build confidence in the gospel. Premier Unbelievable is our apologetics um, uh, wing, and we have so much interaction on that where we actually learn how to have civil conversations about things we disagree with with others. And that podcast reaches a whole uh, bunch of people, about uh, 4 million people all around the world. And um, building confidence in the gospel, we're doing training courses as well. We have thousands of people join our online training course called Confident Christianity. We need to know how to be confident about being arrogant to be winsome, often compelling. Creating an informed church, we have Premier Christian News and we want to develop the amount of news content. I spoke earlier about how we need a Christian voice in the secular uh, and the national media discussion, otherwise the voice of faith won't be heard and people will misunderstand faith. So that's a critical part, but also taking a step further into praying for the news. Um, and that's something, all our news stories end with prayer, so we have hundreds of thousands of people not just reading prayer stories praying for those stories as well. The fifth thing is influencing government, and uh, we know, based on the research, that the Christian community is concerned about uh, freedom of thought, conscience, religion, and so we are more and more uh, engaged in that area. Um, Kevin here, uh, who's our Director of External Affairs, and working thoughtfully with politicians in the Parliament, something which we're keen uh, to do into the future. And our vision is very much that the church will grow, that individuals will have deeper faith, be a strong Christian voice on the airwaves and digitally across this country. And that's really where Premier's mission is to help the church. And what I've uh, shared today uh, is uh, hopefully some things which have enlightened you. To be honest, I hope I made you uncomfortable at points, but I hope I didn't leave you there because actually there is a huge openness to faith in this country and beyond. There is a huge latent belief in Jesus Christ and there is a huge opportunity to go and connect with people who are lonely, hurting, who are looking for answers, and actually, we know where those answers are found. Thank you very much for listening to me. Um, it's been a pleasure. As Christians, we believe in mercy, so whilst I was giving an hour to talk to you, I know you to talk for a few minutes, so there you go. That's, I might be a little mercy, I don't know. I believe you have a couple of Mindset. Is there any, if there's any kind of any questions or comments, maybe we'll take a couple of minutes. Does anyone want to say anything or ask question on any comments? Does Premier Radio or any other organisation run any sort of training for the clergy on how to keep up to date with the sort of technical advancements? Because I think I'm worth the Catholic Bishop Conference. I know some of our clergy would love to get involved in it, but should not know where to start. And it's difficult for them to just Google it because it's a minefield. Yeah. So I was wondering, is there an option for that? So we do have um, we do have a website called Premier Digital Info. It's got a lot of historic talks on it, so it's got several hundred talks from our whole from our conferences that we run. Uh, we don't have any live training right now, something we'd like to restart. It was really kiboshed by the pandemic and resources maybe haven't really been able to bring it back. But it's something we'd like to do, so we hope to maybe bring that back in the next year or so. Largely probably online so people can join from across the country. Um, but I would love to hear more actually about what would be specifically of use to you, so maybe we can connect afterwards and I'd love to. Any other questions?
is there one thing in like church we need to apply? Boiling it down to one thing. I would say people want to get closer to God and figure out how to make that as easy as possible for them today using whatever you can find out. Off the camera. Any other questions or comments? Just what about the story? I'm not sure how to put this, but in terms of the, the topic itself, the structure. So it's so COVID, how uh, a lot of churches went for digital. And, but then we also saw the uh, aftermath of that, where again, you know, they struggled to get people together, to be to be I mean, I know I've just gone to churches that those ones pay just because people didn't come out and So I'm just I guess my question then would be how uh, is there balance in terms of people now online online? So for example, in my church where we attend uh, before COVID, we used to have our weekly services, family services, face to face. But we noticed with COVID, uh, the numbers increased in you know, our weekly services. So we kept weekly services online whilst we were still participating. I was just wondering. Uh, that's just one example. Yeah. No, I think no, I think that we heard that time and time again through the pandemic and disciples. The big win, so to speak, was uh, midweek premise and midweek services because you know on a cold November evening you could join intercessor prayer in the comfort of the front room while you go to a drop to church hall. You know, it might not be possible for you. People who were housebound were to actually you know, what you said there totally trying to a lot of experience across the country, but. Those kind of meetings really, really uh, benefited from being opened up. But I think, you know, your question about churches closing, I think it's a massive problem where I think we all preachers have had it. There's so much psychology and uh, behavioural science that goes into understanding why we do what we do. And we lost the habit of attending church during the pandemic because we couldn't. And we formed new habits. And the problem is then you've got to break those habits to go back to your old ones. And that's a massive, massive issue as to why I think things need to go back to the way uh, that they were. And I, my view on digital as it relates to the end of Sunday morning is that um, if I, again, you know, I'll use a football analogy, right? So how many people go to the Emirates Stadium, 60 odd thousands, if you want to watch Arsenal? You might not want it, but you could. Big um, choice. How many people watch it around the world on TV or follow it or the matches on social media? Um, the very most enthusiastic and the ones that live near the stadium go to the stadium. And so I think we have to look at um, digital not necessarily as competition for the stadium, it's an on-ramp into the world and the community and the culture of the church. We're, we're lowering the barriers, we're knocking down the walls, we're bringing people in, and we hope that those that can will love what they experience so much, they'll then come to the building. But often it's the other way around, we want to get them in the building and then people will get on the WhatsApp group and maybe then we'll maybe, you know, let them get Zoom details. I think it's just looking at it as a slightly different It's not an alternative or replacement for the church, it should be an on-ramp satisfaction of what churches. Final question, if there is one. And, uh, just yeah, just a, a general comment about those that communicate with these preachers or in that context. Like bad examples of music videos. I noticed today you had simple slides, you have loads of very few details, but simple images where sometimes it's sort of death by bad PowerPoint slides. Any tips on that? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. 
So my approach when doing things like this is that if I'm if I'm training, like if I if I said we're going to do a training session or something, I would have slides with three points. I would I would have some detail because it's like you're trying to impart knowledge. For me, when I'm trying to inspire or trying to communicate something which is more big picture, I do stick very much with imagery and illustrations because I think it opens up people's thinking a little bit more. But that would be my that's just my perspective on how to do. You're right. You can't just. I think it's just you can't. If I was doing a training session, this would have been the wrong format. Uh, so I feel like you've got to think, think what's the audience and what's the purpose of my communication and then fit everything around it to make it work. Right, 10.13, two minutes to spare. It's been lovely. Thank you for those questions. Really insightful.